start. Okay, well, I'm going to stir the pot um, because that's what I do. Um, I don't want anybody to think that what I'm saying means you have to go away and change what you believe. You don't at all, but that's who we are as Q. We're questioning and we're on a quest. And so there are some things which um, need to be brought to the table because otherwise you can get quite stuck um, in a, a, a doctrine um, that's just been handed to us. And uh, I, I, I'm doing this many, most of the time for myself because um, what I was handed, um, I recognised that for a very long time I didn't do a lot of um, thinking uh, about it myself, but what I did was just basically uh, receive it in the form it was given um, and it, it all made a lot of sense. It was, well, that's great, that's fantastic, until it's like the, get the dominoes. If you line them all up and you touch one and they all start coming down, what do you do then? You can't then just say, oh, okay, uh, those dominoes have fallen, what am I going to do now? You, you've actually got to stop and ask questions. Why has this happened? What is going on? And so... Um, I have to be honest, the whole issue of theology is not an easy business at all. What happened was uh, a very simple common narrative was created out of a very complex situation to somehow, a bit like you dangle a carrot uh, in front of the donkey to make it, make it go. And in many ways, that is what's happened um, with what you would call um, certain religions of the world uh, they've taken on a life of their own because um, it was put into a package um, a bit like what we've talked about in the past. If you create a problem uh, that only you can solve, <laughs> you've got a, a, a sitting audience, haven't you? You know, if you say, you know, uh, you have a problem and you need to come to me to, to fix it, then, you, then you're all right. And for me, that, that in a very simple way is what... Uh, basic religion has done. Um, sorry. I'll leave the lid off. Um, so, Anth brought a great um, study for us last week and he was basically using the Bible to talk about um, who and what God is. And I was thrilled with it. There was a lot of wonderful stuff there. But I said to him, I said, the only problem is you, you, you only used the Bible, because that is one perspective. You could say, well, what about all the other perspectives? And I know, you see, again, that can be quite controversial because uh, Christianity is one of those uh, religions that has claimed that it is the true religion. There are others, a bit like Islam, they've done the same. And also the Jewish religion, they have done the same. So who is right? And uh, it, it, it causes you to ask, lots of questions and of course it makes it more complicated that what Christianity became was based on what you would say was the, the, the Jewish religion, the Old Testament, the Hebrews and it, it, I like to use the word evolved because the, the whole understanding of God, who was God and what was God actually evolved. Now a lot of people freak at that word because it's associated with evolution and we say never god cannot have evolved he's been the you know the same ever and he's never changed 
But I promise you, if you really get into studying the Bible, you will watch the whole understanding of God evolve. And uh, I'll talk a bit about that tonight. Now, forgive me if, if, if it feels like I'm going off topic. I don't think I am, but you might think I am. But I think by the end, you'll, you'll see where I'm, I'm going. Um, because there's a lot of questions I'm going to ask, and I might not answer them, but at least posing that question opens your mind. And you might just write that down and think, oh, I've got to go away and think about that. Because I might not answer it for you, but these are the questions that inspire my study and, and, and make me, you know, um, dig and Google at unearthly hours, like two in the morning. But anyway, um, so who and what is God? Um, and like I say, this is not a challenge to anything that Anthony was saying because I agreed with it all last week. It was great and I loved it. And I particularly loved, and for me, and I'll get probably to where I'm going to end up, right now the, the most wonderful understanding that I've got is this revelation about the Yahweh. Oh, it makes perfect sense. I absolutely love it. It gives me joy that I've not had in a long time because it really makes a lot of sense that why that name that the uh, Hebrew people wouldn't even speak, but it actually was the sound of breath. To me, that makes more sense than ever, and I'm liking that. So that's my little bit of a journey, and I'm really thrilled, and we'll get there sort of in the end. But Anth brought that last week, and I was absolutely uh, thrill thrilled about that. Um, the, there was something on Facebook this morning. It said, uh, you know, there was a, a child drawing a picture at the back of the class, and the teacher went and said, what are you drawing? And the child said, a picture of God. And um, the teacher replied, oh, I didn't know anyone knew what God looked like. And the child said, they will in a minute. I thought that was lovely. It really blessed me. And so it, all of us are, are drawing, aren't we, in, in, in our own understanding, a picture, a concept of God. And uh, in essence, that's all I'm doing tonight. And if you don't agree with me, that's really fine. Um, but we'll take you on this little journey. Um, so I struggle with Yahweh, not as the breath, but I struggle as Yahweh, as the uh, God of Israel, um, in the context of Yahweh also then being the God of Jesus. And I've struggled with it for a long time. And uh, we might just make a little bit of sense of it tonight and I'm, I'm very nervous because obviously I'm touching stuff oh you know the members we shouldn't be touching but that's okay but I'm to ask last week can we set God free he said we're happy about God setting us free but can we set God free and uh, I know that um, we've boxed God off massively and Francesca asked a wonderful question last week and I, I'm uh, thinking that Anth will probably deal with it um, another time as a, as a session, but it was that if it's true that we're living in the moment and all that matters is now, why do we hold an event that happened 2,000 years ago as important for our measurement? And I mean, that's a cracking question. And it's a, a, very, clap, a, a great question. And, um, you know, it's one that needs to be pondered and we're not going to answer that in five minutes, are we? But, you know, let, let's think about it. See, the questions come up was, was Jesus the, as the exact, exact, exact representation of the Father, we are told in Hebrews, was that the 
only representation of the father that's ever been? And, was, and is it the last representation of the father? Was it the first word of God because it was the word made flesh? And is it the last word made flesh? No, I aren't answering that for you, but it's a good question, isn't it? Why is it that we're still referring to the past 2,000 year, years ago to, to, to direct our path in the context of the here and now? It, it, it's cracking. Anyway, so if someone asks you, who are you? They're usually looking to locate you with a name, aren't they? And an origin and a purpose. And uh, we usually pinpoint God with Jesus, his birth, death and resurrection because of the fact that we're told is the exact representation of the Father. And of course, we make meaning of that 2,000 years later in our time and, and space. Now, um, what I want to know is, have we basically snapshotted that and put Jesus then in a box? Have we put the God of Jesus in that box with Jesus? Uh, and like I said, did he become ever the manifestation of God for all time? If so, we get stuck in a culture and a nationality that nowhere reflects mine, right? So when you look back and you read the scriptures, as lovely as they are, and, and, and I'm not hitting it at all, but it's not my life, you know? I mean, we'll get to it in a little while where we talk about women and the fact that women of those days, they were nothing. They weren't even seen as part of the... Um, the birthing of children in, in the context of, um, you know, it seems obvious, you know, the, the woman has the egg, the man has the sperm. But in Hebrew um, understanding, it wasn't. The woman was purely the oven. The man had the egg and the sperm. That's how blooming, what, do you, what, what word can I give them? Misogynistic they were. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I want you to just understand, it's not my culture, it's not my, um, nation, my nation, and yet I'm asked to understand God and Jesus and who he is and what he is in the context of something that I cannot understand. We're, we're, we're in modern Britain, you know, and, and I will at some point, uh, I was saying to Anne, um, I read some stuff online today about the spiritual history of Britain. Oh, and it was so exciting to even see where we have come from and the events and things that have, have influenced our country and why we are who we are today. It's absolutely amazing because when some people say, oh, well, if I'd have been born, uh, you know, in India, I would have been a, a Hindu, possibly, or you could have been a Muslim or, or, or a, a Catholic Christian because of the influences, you see. Um, so, I'll, I'll, I'll bypass that for a minute, but um, what you have to understand is that, that events that happen also redirect your beliefs and thinking. So, for instance, let me just throw this in. You've all heard of the guy called uh, Buddha who had a revelation and he went off on his own journey to uh, receive enlightenment. He started originally as a Hindu, and it was because his, his national religion did not give him what he was looking for that he chose to lay that down and go his own journey. Now, you would think, wow, this is one guy 
in a, a, a massive nation who chose to look beyond his, his culture. Anyway, I hope you understand uh, what I'm saying. So anyway, listen to this. I think this will blow your mind. There are supposedly 320 million, that's six zeros, isn't it? Million. Thank you. I need help. Gods worshipped in our world. 320 million. Now, doesn't that blow your mind when we start having a, a group like this to talk about who and what God is? And what? Or do I have to? No. Uh, I can look it up for you if you like. But the, the majority of those are Hindu. I can at least tell you that. It, the, there are thousands and thousands of Hindu gods. But we sit here and we would say, yes, but ours is the true God. And I am not, and I will keep saying this when I speak, I am not saying he isn't. But what I'm saying, it's easy to miss understand and potentially not understand who that God is because there are that many with different attributes that we can all that we can pinch things from all over the place and you can see that that actually happened with Israel um, which just might be of, under, uh, of interest to you in this little study. So as well as there being 320 million gods worshipped in our world there are also 140 what's called pantheons that means God counsels where there is a big bunch of them with one supreme God, but lots of lesser gods. There's 140 of them. Now, I think this is really interesting because it's like, okay, we, I need to do some, some reading up about some of this. Then also, there are lots of isms. Now, an ism. We understand the term atheism. And if you want to write these on the board, you can. If you're interested or you just want me to speak them out, I will. But I want you to just get a bit of an understanding about what we're talking about when, when we get to grips with study of, 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 of God and the, the Bible, theology, you see. Um, theism is the understanding of God as the creator and also the sustainer of the universe. So out there in the world, you've got theists, right? Theists. And if you want to write it down, you can. Theists. God is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. And then you've got deists. Or can I use the deists? Can I use the isms, please? I would prefer that. Right? You've got deism, which is God is the creator. Deism. He is, he is the creator, but he's not the sustainer, where you might think, well, hey, D-E-I-S-M. No, just D-E-I-S-M. Then we've got pantheism, that actually God is the universe itself. Now, you might say, well, yeah, that sounds about right. But there's a lot of people who are Christian who would say, no, he's not. Because actually, a Christian would be a monotheist or monotheism, which is actually... He isn't the, the universe itself, but he is God of the universe, right? So have you got that down? Have you got him? You've got him? Okay. I, th I think sometimes I'm a bit moving towards pantheism. I, I do. I'm just being honest with you. Um, then we have pandeism. Sorry, deism is 
God is the creator, but not a sustainer. Now, you might think, well, that seems a bit weird, but it's just to do with how they decide how things are, are worked out. Um, where, where were we? Pandeism. God became the universe after ceasing to exist as a separate entity. So he started as a separate entity, but then he became the universe. Have you got that? Pandeism. No, pande. Uh, duh. Okay. Then I've already mentioned atheism. We all know what that means. God doesn't exist. That's a doddle, isn't it? Um, then we've got henotheism. Heno, H-E-N-O. It's nothing to do with chickens. But a hen- henotheism is that the people are devoted to one God but they equally recognise all the 360 million that exist as well. Uh, And then we've got agnosticism, um, which is one that a lot of people pull actually now because they say, well, whether God exists or not, we can't know. That's very simply what an agnostic is, and I think sometimes I go there as well. (laughs) So I think, well, I can't know any of this anyway other than... In here, but yeah, you know, I can't know it for sure. Um, and then there's omnitheism. Do you like all these theisms? You wouldn't have thought there's all these, would you? Omnitheism. All religions have the same God, but they just call it and understand it differently. I can go with that one as well a bit, can't you? Um, and then I've already mentioned monotheism, which we would call ourselves. Or should I say it's what the Western Christian religion would call themselves, plus the Jewish religion, Muslims and us. And we three are what you would call Abrahamic religions. We all stem from Abraham. So you can see why it gets very messy, because we use the Old Testament as our trajectory into Christ, the Jews, obviously, have uh, the Hebrews uh, originally, but obviously don't accept the Christ as we do. And then you've got your um, Muslims who believe Abraham was the, um, the, the father of us all, but it was Ishmael who was the, the child of promise who they then followed. And of course, you've got the fact that Muhammad had his enlightenment and he, he had an angel appear to him and, you know, he wrote his book and everything. And so you've got this other thing, the Quran going in tandem then with the Bible. But technically, they're Abrahamic religions. Am I, am, am I doing all right? I'm not confusing you at all. Okay. So, um, and the names uh, of them, because the others don't have any names for their gods. But in monotheism, of course, you've got Allah for the Muslim god. You've got Yahweh, which of course isn't pronounced. Um, we call him Jehovah. Now, listen, some of you might not even understand this, and I'm not treating you as simple, but it took me years to figure this out. Why does it sometimes say Yahweh, and then why does it say Jehovah? Who's Jehovah? Who's Yahweh? Jehovah is just purely the Latinized form of Yahweh. And, and that's why sometimes it can be confusing, because when the Bible is written, whichever translation you've got, 
They sneak in words that they shouldn't sneak in. So instead of keeping it all to one translation, they mix, the, 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 the mix it around a bit. And you're thinking, hang on a minute, what are you doing here? You know, if you're going to do it Hebrew, do it Hebrew. If you're going to do it English, do it English. But don't mix it around. So we get the Latin thrown in there a little bit. Um, so then, of course, the word Lord would be our English translation of the name Yahweh or Jehovah. And um, the Hebrews wouldn't use either because they can't speak it, but they use the, the name Adonai. Right, so the monotheistic God is this, all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, transcendent, which means outside of nature, imminent, inside of nature, so he's outside and inside, is personal, in the sense that he has intent and he has a will. He's got a destiny that he wants to fulfill and he's the source of all our moral obligation in the sense that he, he would dictate our morality. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, we've moved away a bit from that, but that would be your monotheistic uh, idea. Um, oh, there's one more I need to put in. Uh, perennial philosophy, I like this one. It sounds like a flower, doesn't it? A perennial. There is one underlying theological truth and all religions express a partial understanding. There is one God, but different overlapping concepts. You can if you want. I mean, if, if per, perennial philosophy. That's not an ism, but it is an ism if you see what I mean. So anyway, can you see how there's all these... Oh, it doesn't matter. The... the you know, it's just a matter if people want to get follow something up, you can see it then. So I mentioned these not to be clever, but to point out what you're dealing with when you're trying to understand this. It's a minefield. And in one sense, it's helped me under, understand that if there is a God, he's not going to be that messed up with all of this because everybody can get it so wrong. Are you following me? That's the problem, because there's that much of it to try and figure out. How can you work out what is right and what is wrong? You just, you just can't. So on the back of that, then, that really sets me free to, to free God. If you see, I can free him because of this, because there's that many ideas out there. Now, I know that some people like me, and remember, I am one of them, who was brought up so there that any time anything was mentioned about anything outside of this very, very narrow tram line. Oh, be careful. Oh, be careful. And remember, the devil was always in it, ready to absolutely, you know, devour you as if God in bigger and better and, you know, than that. But that was what it was like. And so for me, I recognise over the last 15 years that it was all too narrow. I'm suffocating and I needed... To, to free God. And so it's been amazing. And I, I, I'm finding that I'm literally finding joy. For the first time in a long time, I'm actually finding joy. And this is amazing. But anyway, I hope you're with me. So um, I used to ask my parents, I used to say, well, you know, don't all faiths lead to the same place? Surely they're all leading to God. And, you know, they're just different you know, some are going mountain route, the others are going motorway, others are, you know, on a bike, others are in a plane. And my mum would categorically say, no, never. 
because, you know, it, it was a categorically no because there was only one way, listen to this, to, to the Father. Now, what does that immediately say to you? To, to, somewhere else. And, and that's the key. It, it blows my mind. I'm thinking, yeah, we were told all the time, Jesus is the only way to. It was always somewhere else. And so um, God was always out there. So here's the thing that I'm asking. And I, as I say, I'm not necessarily going to answer all the questions. But are we stuck in an ancient model? And uh, while we make the claim that we are the only true religion, can we? Are we, are we supposed to? Or are we like, maybe it's one of whatever it was down here, was it the omnitheism or the one that says, uh, all religions have the same God, but just call it and understand it differently. Or what was the one we said that we all could be a bit, or pantheism, God is the universe itself, whatever. Right, you're following me, there's bits that we can think, I can actually resonate with that. So I used to be told that the differences were fundamental and the similarities were superficial. And I'm not so sure that that's true anymore, but of course we're working that out as we, we, we go along. And as we've talked, a lot of stuff is deeply affected by culture. So where are we? I mentioned at the beginning that what I'm really settling with, and it's really blessing my heart right now, is this idea of Yahweh, the breath, and the fact that, like we said last week, it's the breath within the breath. It's the I am, it's the moment, it's the recognising of my being because you see I believe in being itself now do you get what I mean in there that the actual thing called being let's put it that way um from which all beings flow and exist um and God is that being uh but we have being have you, have you got me we are beings but he is being, and uh, I'll, I'll touch a bit more on that in, in a little, little bit. And so we talked about, you know, how the reference point that we have as Christians is the Bible, and it's great, and it's a, a great book. It's got some great things in it. Um, but what we have, it's, it could be seen. Now, let me, let me be careful how I say this. It could be seen to reveal a Jewish God Israel's God because when all said and done and, and again I'll try to be more detailed with this in that ancient time gods were tribal every different tribe had their own God and um, uh, we, we get this picture through the Old Testament of um, this Jewish God and his evolution in that sense then we have Jesus appearing which who was a Jew, which then joins Christianity and Judaism together, which I'm not always sure that that's a good fusion. Maybe it was never supposed to happen, or maybe it was supposed to happen in ways that were beneficial, but then we took it too far and added more than, than we should have done. Um, but then, of course, it later then, the, the Christianity that we have became Romanized and empirical, and then ultimately it gets affected by Greek philosophy, which then ends us up having a pagan narrative for what we then use as the meaning 
for God, his Christ, and his death and resurrection. So I hope that's making sense as to the, the journey of which it goes. So we don't even have, and I've mentioned this many times, the concept of original sin until the third century. Original sin wasn't even in the minds of anybody until the third century. And the idea of a cosmic enemy wasn't until the fourth. So the devil, Satan, as a, hear what I'm saying, as a cosmic entity wasn't understood or given a name until the fourth century. All that, and I'll just reiterate so that you don't misunderstand me. Satan in the Old Testament meant adversary. Um, devil in the New Testament meant accuser. And we can all be little Satans and we can all be little devils. So it was more in those terms that it was being used. But we aren't touching on that tonight. This is where we're going. So do we have an origin for this God? Because we're asking who is God. Do we have an origin for him in or it or whatever you want to call it? Because was saying last week, you know, it, him, she, whatever. Uh, do we have an origin? Now, if we obviously look in the Bible, it's, it, it's complex because of language. So the Bible obviously started in uh, the Old Testament in Hebrew. Anybody fluent Hebrew here? Okay, so we're really all in a bit of a mess. And then there's Jesus who spoke Aramaic, which is a, another matter. Um, and then, of course, you've got... The, the Hebrew text being translated into Greek. Anybody fluent in Greek? I know we had Michael at one point, didn't we, Mike, who you know, could have helped us a bit. But it's still not one of those languages that people choose, is it, to do. If it was French or Spanish, we might have a bit more hope. And then, of course, from the Greek, it be, it's turned into English. And we have what we have. And then, of course, the, like I've mentioned about the names being, being altered and we... So, for instance, I mentioned about the Lord being the English version of Yahweh in the Old Testament. But did you know that Baal, who was the god of the Canaanites, who you've got many scriptures and stories of them getting upset with each other because they were, you know, um, rival groups. Baal is also translated Lord so you can have a problem when you're reading it because you might be talking about Baal and not Yahweh. Because in fact, if you look at the, the way that the, the story goes, there was a point in Israel's journey where Baal and Yahweh was, were almost the same. And some worshipped Baal and some worshipped Yahweh. And in fact, it took a long time for Baal to become the enemy because up to that point, you could worship who you wanted. If you were in Canaan, you could worship Baal. If you were over here, you could worship somebody else. Because they were very tribal and they accepted each other's gods. So they were this, henotheists. They were devoted to one god. They were devoted to one, but they equally accepted all the others as well. So it gets really quite confusing. It's also... Um, interesting that we find that that Yahweh the God of Israel I will use that tagged on was not the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob it 
seems because all the Genesis references are not to Yahweh. It's to this, and I've mentioned this before, but it's worth uh, mentioning it again. He was called El. And that's why a lot of the names you read in Genesis end up with El. And it's even the reason why Israel itself is Israel. It's not Israel-Yah or Israel-Way. It's Israel. Because I know it's funny, but we've, we've known the name Israel. I mean, I'm 60. I've known that name all my life, Israel. But it, in, in essence, it should be Israel-Yah or Israel-Way. Because names um, basically indicated who was your God. Now, some of you are a bit, ooh, didn't know this. And that's good. That's great. Yahweh only comes on the scene um, and monotheism, which is the one we're talking about here, um, we, I'm saying at the minute that there were this and they became that uh, at the time of Moses. And uh, what happened is monotheism became very much the adopted uh, understanding. And that's why you've got a lot of references to idolatry. Because once they decided that they were going to be monotheists, that meant every other god suddenly became an idol. And that's why there was great, you know, uh, upsets over whether they were doing right and wrong and this, that and the other. Um, because up to that point, it wasn't a problem. So after the Babylonian exile, uh, about sixth century before Christ, was when Yahweh became Israel's national God. And um, that worries me a little bit because what it does, it shows you that it wasn't, well, I've got to recap. When I said it seems that Yahweh wasn't the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, I say that because of the scripture that says that when he appeared to Moses, he said, I have appeared to your forefathers, but I did not appear to them like this, like I am now. And basically he was saying, I was something different then to what I am now. But then there are other parts of the scripture that don't make that very clear. It's as though that the Israelites had El, who was the chief god of the Canaanite pantheon, was their god. And as they developed, they took Yahweh. And let me just, I'll, I'll take you a bit further to just give you the, the scriptural story. Um, because it seems that Yahweh actually had a, an origin. He came from somewhere. I find it dead interesting. A God came from, he had a house, you know, no, he didn't. He had a place, he had a, uh, he actually came from somewhere, according to the Bible. Did you know that? He didn't come from heaven. He came from somewhere. Now, Deuteronomy 33, 2. Um, now, remember, Israel wasn't just one tribe. And again, our upbringing as fixated us on this great bunch of people that were always huge and always together. But in fact, that's not how it started. Tiny little different groups of nomadic people ultimately gathered together and became one big tribe. But it didn't start that way. So Deuteronomy 33, 2, he says this, 
The Lord came from Sinai and dawned over them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. Now, that is a, a location. It is literally a location, right? He came from there. Now, it means then that he originated from a particular place. And it, it indicates that the early Israelites identified, originally identified Yahweh and the other god, El, who was widely worshipped in Canaan. And basically those two were sort of mushed together. Now, they are found, and it's very interesting if you get into, um, uh, what do you call it when you dig stuff? Oh, archaeological digs and, and, and discoveries, they actually found a, a, an Egyptian inscription um, from the time of Pharaoh. This is back 1390 to 1352 BCE, which actually has writing on it that refers to a tribe called the Shashu of Yahweh. Now, isn't that interesting that they actually can pinpoint this group way back there as evidence that this God was worshipped by this group way back, long before any, any, uh, he ever became famous with the, with the Israelites. And um, basically, this group migrated northward towards Canaan, and they settled in that area. And that's where the, the, you know, the whole thing sort of started. Now, um, Exodus tells us that Israelites had not worshipped Yahweh, at least by that name, before Moses. And um, we've got uh, the revelation to Moses in this, you know, when he said to him, you know, when I go back to, to um, Egypt, what am I going to call you? And this is where we get the story from um, about the I am, say I am, I sent you. But that's not what I'm wanting to, to talk about. But this region where Yahweh sort of originated from with this group, this little nomadic tribe, this region continued to be regarded as the dwelling place of Yahweh. And if you want scriptures, I can give you it, but I don't want to bore you with them. But it's there, it's written that this was where he sort of lived. And um, if you think about it, Moses was closely connected with that area because when he came out of Egypt, that's where he went when he escaped from Egypt. Now, this is where it gets interesting because if you remember, Jethro was Moses' father-in-law and he ended up marrying his, one of his daughters. And the thing is, Jethro is an actual Yahwehist name. Because you say, J, no. Remember, Jehovah, that's the, that's the, um, sorry. It, it's the English way of saying it, because it shouldn't be a J. It should be a, a Y or an I. See, it all gets very confusing. But the point I'm trying to make is that this guy, Jethro, was actually a Midianite priest, who when then um, Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, they came to Jethro, and that is when the, this Jethro was sacrificing offerings to Yahweh. So we've got a lovely little, you know, story uh, coming on there. So these people had been worshipping Yahweh, plus Moses' father-in-law, which then you can see the tie to Moses and then how it, it developed on from there. So 
What's in a name? There is no, like I think I've said this already, but I'll have to say it again, sorry. There is no name in Genesis that forms the name Yahweh. Israel is not Yahwistic. It's actually associated with El, the chief god of the Canaanites. And um, Jacob, who was later called Israel, when his name was changed, it says he was blessed by El Shaddai and built an altar to El. And you can read about that in Genesis 33. Even angel names, think about it, Michael, Gabriel. That's why Lucifer is a problem, because he doesn't make any sense. It's a Latinized name. Where's that come from? And if you look at how it's been translated, where they come up with it, I, I, for another time, but it's really quite interesting. Um, but then, of course, you've got the, the transition with people who then, if you look at the stories of families, how they change their children's name, because once Yahweh became their God, names were Baal, or because... Baal was part of the El pantheon over of the Canaanites. If their name had Baal at the end, they changed them because it suddenly became offensive because, like we said, once you become monotheistic, you can't be having your kids called by another God's name. So they changed them. And, and I mean, I, I could tell you some. David, for instance, um, his, one of his sons was called Baaliadr, I can't even say him, but he was called that. And that was changed to, where is it? Where is it? Oh, I haven't written it down. It was changed. Will you just accept that? Thank you. Um, <laughs> and then even Samuel, who was the, the um, uh, prophet, his kids, even though his name was Samuel, his kids were actually named after Baal. So you can see the tying of, of this henotheism going on. He was like, okay, well, we'll call my kids after him because, yeah, we can do that. It all got changed um, once Yahweh was established. So Yahweh absorbs every single one of um, El's characteristics. Now, Anth went through all, I think they're on the back there, we could look at them, all the characteristics um, that we, we talk about. So um, anything that El originally was associated with, suddenly Yahweh is now. It's like nothing else exists. Just let's rub out El and that pantheon and we'll just Im impose Yahweh on it all. Uh, so let me read this now because it's interesting, I, I think, and it's better I read it than trying just to say it. Uh, in its mature form, the concept of Yahweh represents God as the absolute, eternal, unchanging creator of the universe who is also a personal being that cares intensely for mankind as a father does for his child or a husband does for a wife. Among his divine attributes are mercy, wisdom, righteousness, loving kindness, justice, compassion, patience and beauty. However, ah, he is also jealous. Now, I find that really interesting. I'm going to tell you why in a minute. I've got to stop using the word interesting, haven't I? I've used it a lot tonight. <laughs> How so? Yeah. Um, because if it's true that all the other gods were but imaginations or made of stone and idols, 
why would there be jealousy? Because if they're just inanimate, what's there to be jealous of? You might say, well, I don't think you should be doing that, but why would you get all hot and bothered over something that was just stone? Am I making sense? Um, but it's, this is the characteristics, you see. It's also jealous deity. Although he's slow to anger, he will harshly punish those who betray him, including the whole people of Israel, in order to bring about their eventual repentance and reconciliation. Now, that all sounds very good. But what it is doing is making a picture of a God who is incredibly demanding and not one that is uh, so, um, what's the word, uh, relational. What matters is his power and getting what he believes is right. And this is what, of course, the Jewish and the Hebrew people believe. Now, the reason why I'm telling you this, because you might think, what's this all about? This is who our God is meant to be. And this is what we're talking about tonight. Who and what is God? And we're asking who we're supposed to be our God. And that's why I'm putting the question mark. Um, so um, the classical expression of this theology is found in Exodus 34 in the scene which God appears to Moses after he's received the Ten Commandments. Now listen to this. Then the Lord came down in the cloud stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord, which is Yahweh. Remember, Lord is the English Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for, theirs, for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation we like that we like this this is this is the they with me i'm just trying to take you on the journey this this is this is the, our god um we're also to see that yahweh is to punish all of the gods too and there's a few uh, scriptures and i haven't written them all down because i didn't want to bore you with just you know, you'll either take my word or you won't. You know what I mean? It's there. Um, Jeremiah 46, 25. If you can just put that up for me, because at least you can have a look at that one. Um, again, we've got the, the idea of what this God is like. Is it up there? Right, look at this. The Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, I am about to bring punishment on Ammon, God of Thebes, on Pharaoh, on Egypt and her gods and her kings and on those who rely on Pharaoh, I will give them into the hands of those who want to kill them. But these are gods. Now, I was told that all other gods in my monotheistic upbringing were, were not real. They, were, they didn't even exist. But in this account, we have got potentially God, the, the true God, saying that I am going to hand over other gods. And if you look at other references in the, in the Bible, you have um, references to where um, land is being given out to tribes. And at the time, it's El who's saying, um, he's sharing out land to the other lesser gods. And this is where Yahweh is given Israel as his portion. And that is in Deuteronomy 32, I believe, 
where Yahweh becomes Israel's God because it was literally given from El, who was the chief God of the, of the Canaanites. Now you might say, well, what's this all about? What I'm trying to tell you is that our history is actually tied up with a whole bunch of other gods. And we're meant to figure it out. We're meant to understand. It's a right, quite a mess. Anyway, how can you punish an idol of stone? Why would a God be jealous of that which has no breath? And I remember I was singing it to Anth because I do this at times. I break into songs that I used to sing when I was about five or six or something like that. And I remember this song and it was this. The idols of the heathen are silver and gold. This is when we used to sing scripture. Do you remember? A long time ago. The work of men's feeble hands. They have mouths but they speak not. Ears but they hear not. Neither is there any breath in their mouths. I can sing it, you know. I can another tune. And they that make them... I like them, and so is everyone who puts their trust in them. So what does it mean if you put their, your trust in something that can't speak, can't hear, can't breathe, and you're the same? Well, you ain't going to do much damage to anything, are you? So why is God so jealous? Is that a good question? I think it is. Okay, so Yahweh was this tribal God, and this is the issue. As the tribe become more monotheistic... God becomes more distant, more demanding, and like we mentioned the word last week, more anthropomorphic. Now, what we mean by that is that he takes on more human characteristics, which you then feel that you are dealing with. Um, see, to say human would be obvious, yes, but a reduced, thank you, that's the word I'm looking for. You, you're dealing with a reduced being who, the word I want to use is petty. And that's why over the last 15 years I felt that the, I had to make the journey because what my understanding of God was had become so reduced that, and I'll, I'll use this as an illustration, you know, basically people, even in, even in our evangelical understanding that, that we were in, people would be thanking God for a car park space because, you know, he cares about, and I'm not saying he doesn't, please understand me, you know, thanking God for a car parking space. But then, you know, kids in, in the Yemen are, are, are emaciated and dying and it's like, oh, well, you know, God knows best and he, he has, you know, his, his wisdom, he's, you know, all-knowing and he, and he understands. And what happens is then we treat this whole understanding of God in a very um, reduced way. I haven't really made that very clear, but I'll, I'll, I'll move on. I can maybe dig me out of that hole later. So anyway, um, also what happens as well is there's more emphasis on patriarchy. So in the Old Testament, um, you have lots of goddesses as well as gods. Now, isn't it interesting that we don't talk about goddesses at all, do we, in, in our culture? But in early uh, Old Testament, there were. And uh, it wasn't just the, the Israelites, but the Egyptians. All of them had their um, female gods, uh, goddesses, who were responsible, obviously, for fertility and uh, for, for things on a more female level. But 
What happened was all the goddesses got rid of. Now, if you look at some of the scriptures, you find that in temples where there was, uh, you know, the, the altar for Yahweh, right next to it would be uh, a statue of Asherah. And you've heard of the Asherah or Asherah pole? They were like, a, it was like a tree, which is quite interesting. It should be like a tree. Um, it would be next to the altar, and that was part of the whole uh, complete picture of, 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 of God and his consort because you needed a female as, as part of the whole thing. But what happened, it became so patriarchal that all the goddesses were got rid of and any fe feminine portrayals of God were, de were destroyed. Now, um, there's a reference in, in uh, Jeremiah 7 to the Queen of Heaven. And I'm not sure who he's talking about, but you can find that there's many references to um, Asherah being connected with El, who was the chief god of the Canaanites, and also connected with Yahweh. Because remember what I said, everything that El was, Yahweh basically carried uh, on into the future. So the reason why I've told you that, you might think, heck, what's this all about? Um, because as Christianity developed the attitude to women, whew, and that should never have happened, but it is associated with it, the journey that monotheism took. Because, like I say, there was no female connections with, with the gods anymore. There wasn't that feminine side. So it all became, and like I said at the beginning, you know, even um, in... Jesus' time, the, uh, the whole idea of, of um, Mary being a virgin is not so much the fact that she had not had sex, but it was the fact that she had nothing particularly to do with the birth. So basically, it was all from God. It was all God. It was all the man, you see. Do, uh, see what I'm saying? So I know that's another story, which we can look at that another time. But anyway... Um, so we get to Augustine. I just want to bring it in here. Because of Old Testament and the character of this God, which is the God of Israel, what you get is Augustine, who was one of the founding fathers of Christianity, who, who yeah, who was, he's a bit of a fella, this, he was. He was so anti-women it was shocking how he spoke about them. There was a real loathing of females. And he said this, he says, Women are evil temptresses, an eternal danger. Women only function, women's only function is to bear children, but that passes on the contagion of original sin. So they become the devil's gateway. This is Augustine. This is one of our founding fathers. So listen to this, this is, You've heard of Thomas Aquinas. Uh, woman is a misbegotten man. Get that. And has, fault, has a, and has a faulty and defective nature. Heck. The word and works of God is quite clear. Wait to hear who says this. Women were made to be either wives or prostitutes. Do you know who, that, who said that? Martin Luther. He was the one who... Basically, you know, knock the 95 thesis on Gutenberg 
Gutenberg, Gutenberg door, and, and the Reformation came because of him. But his attitude were, to women was that. Why? Because that was what was coming through the patriarchal and very much um, monotheistic idea of this distant God who was very demanding. Right, so let me move on. Um, Western Christianity hasn't really ever recovered because if you think about it, women are still, if you look at it you know, in the context right across the world and definitely probably the, the, the worst is the Muslim faith, which definitely keep women. And you can see why it is. It's basically scriptural and to them it's godly, you see. And that's why you've got to be careful. Why I'm bringing this is because when we ask the question, who is God? If you can't answer these, you are actually, um, you're saying, I agree with that because it says it in the Bible, therefore this is what we can do. This is our attitude towards women. So that's why I'm just bringing that for now. So anyway, um, anyway, where are we? Where are we? Right, so the Bible shows us the difficulty of the journey that the Israelites moving from henotheism, which is they are devoted to one God, but they acknowledge lots of other gods, to monotheism, where it was just Yahweh, their, their God. So in many places of the Bible, you've got King Jeroboam, he puts bulls in, in there, and he has you worshipping bulls. Um, you've got, like I say, Asherah poles next to the, the altar. Even at one point, the, the bronze serpent that was used with, uh, you know, it's when Moses lifted up, up the serpent in the wilderness, for the people who would be being bitten by serpents. That had even become an idol. And they had that next to the altar. Because they, they all felt this real need to have lots of gods. And in fact, what's interesting about it is that, and I didn't realise the, the connection here, but if you think about it in Catholicism, all the saints which exist are a little bit of a parallel to those um, lesser gods which you might have to pray to if you're in need. So rather than having one big god that you go to, you go to a, a saint because, the, you know, if you think about it, St. Christopher, the, the, you know, the god of walkers, or there's, there's one uh, saint who is for uh, breast cancer and you've got all these different ones who you can literally say, Oh, that's what I need. I will pray to this. No, not gods, but are you seeing the parallel? And when it was very much this um, henotheistic period before they became monotheistic, that's what they all had. They had all their little different gods that they could uh, go to. So anyway, um, suddenly what happens once Yahweh is established as Israel's God uh, Everything uh, that relates to other, other gods, suddenly the, na the word changes. It starts talking about demons and devils and the, the language is changing. All because they're trying to make a clear distinction to not even say, oh, well, they're just a lesser god now. No, they're devils and the demons. They're really bad and we need to, you know, get, get rid of all of that. So anyway... Um, so how, how do I bring, bring this around? I have to leave my con that concept of God behind. 
And as I said at the beginning, I believe that basically the expression of Jesus was an advancement on all of that to show us something different. But if I get stuck there in that culture that I don't even understand, it doesn't even speak my language, how can I move on without having to break out of what seems to be, um, oh, I'm, I'm struggling for the word here. Um, well, it's that boxed experience that says that there can't be anything more than I've been told or, or understand. So can we leave that concept behind? Now, some of you don't want to because some of you want to say, no, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the God of Christianity. And he might be. I don't know. I don't like the sound of it myself. But I know that Jesus came to do something and it was very powerful but I'm not sure whether he was the last expression. Are you following me? I'm, I'm not sure he was the last expression. And, and, and that, that sounds so, um, what's the word? I need the word. And what does it sound? Her, her, it sounds her, her, heretical. But what I'm trying to do is take God out of his box. I want to say that I don't have to keep something stuck back then I can be finding something in the here and now to give me more information to take me on for what I need in this day and age not just uh, are, you, are you following me a parallel of that so in the west God has remained in when I say in the west I'm talking about the, the west in terms of Christianity has remained external to man and an alternative reality to that which we understand and know uh, and yet, I believe that we're, it's not meant to be external to me. It's meant to be internal to me. And um, it's supposed to be a reality in which I and the Father are one and living out that reality together. Now, I'm sorry I struggled then. You can all go away and have a think about what I've said. And, uh, is that all right? Um, let's have a look. Now, you see, we've... Again, I was brought up that nothing else was right. And so you have the idea that um, people who follow Buddha are seeking to be like him in the context I can live like the Buddha. And I want to ask the question, can Christians do the same with Jesus as the God-man, as what the Buddhists say that they can do with the Guatama, whatever he was called. So, um, okay. So, Job 11, 7, 8. Can you discover the depths of God? Definitely not. Because it, what I've really tried to say is that I think that what the Israelites did with Yahweh, that was their version of God. They, they created the rules, the regulations, the things that they believed would make them powerful and, and mighty. But that's not necessarily what, I, I need for me. And um, like I said at the beginning, the Christianity's quest has always been to get to the Father when I actually believe that it came to me. And, and we're, we're learning that. And I, I, I really think that that's becoming a much more understood um, concept. So um, Moses asked, what is your name? And this would be my understanding now when everything is stripped back, right? 
Because again, when I look at how God is written up in the Old Testament, which still becomes the measuring stick of how people still believe God is in the now. That's why I struggle, you see. Um, it means that we're constantly living in fear that we can't meet up to his requirements. You know, what happens if I don't do this? That's why when I said about um, he has this will, I watched something on um, YouTube just the other day and it was about how young people who've been brought up in church, one of the greatest fears that they have is believing that they are not living out the will that God has for them. And they're frightened because they're convinced that to live outside of God's will is, is so bad that they become depressed and terrified when, when actually they, they ought to be realising that if there is a will that God has, it's, it's to be loved and just to be cherished and, and, and be alive and, and fully alive in, in this day and age as opposed to be constantly living in fear. And they are the results of a wrong understanding of God. So that's what I'm really trying to get at. So back to Moses. He asked, what is your name? And he says that I am that I am. Um, another way of putting that is I be that I be. Um, he is the one who causes to exist. Now, this is how I would put it then, stripping back everything, that who God is, uh, if I'm going to reject Yahweh, other than the name as breath, because I'm thinking, yep, I'll go with that. They had, they had something there and I like that. Um, you've got um, the fact that he is who, or it is who, causes to exist and it cannot not exist. Um, God is the first cause of everything, whatever that everything was or is. Um, in Acts 17, 25, it says he gives life to all men and everything. He is source. Now, a while back, I moved from the idea of God being, uh, and, and this is, it was necessary for me, it doesn't have to be for anybody else, but for God being um, a person to more, it being an it, an energy, and um, it helped me a lot because I recognised this, and let me just read it, that God is the source of creation itself. It is not independent of you. It is the totality of everything. So when I call myself God, which some of you might say I wouldn't dream of it, but if I am one with him, I can. Um, I am not talking about my personal self. I'm talking about the expression of the God self that rests inside of me. So the verb, energy, not the noun. Because once you think of God as a, as a noun, a person, a place or a thing, you immediately separate yourself from it and immediately becomes limiting um, rather than freeing. So that's what sort of separates those who believe in God out there and those who, who are seeking to be spiritual in the context that they are aware of the, the, the union, the oneness, as opposed to me and it, if you see what I mean. So... Um, God is necessary, now I like this, because he's a necessary being as opposed to being contingent. Now, I like that word contingent because basically 
if he doesn't, if I don't exist, that doesn't change where God is. But if he doesn't exist, then basically nothing exists. Um, and Job uh, 34 says this, if he were to gather his spirit and breath, all flesh would perish, which shows how everything is held together by his breath. And um, I've already mentioned about the will of God um, because we were brought up to believe there's a perfect will and then if we went outside of that perfect will, oh, well, there's plan B. And then, of course, there was the, you're really out of God's will altogether and you're really in a mess. Whereas now, if we, if we get rid of all that, all we have is plan A, which is that I am one with him. He's I am, I, I am, and therefore the two are, are, are working uh, as one being. So, um, let's have a look. Yeah. Do we live believing that we can upset God? I had this conversation with somebody quite a while ago. Do we wake up on a morning and think, he's mad with me? Or you know, See, that again, it becomes that anthropomorphic thing when we give God those feelings of, uh, oh, I haven't done enough to please him. I haven't this, I haven't that. And it's, there's nothing worse than living your life believing that there's some external power out there that's just wanting constantly to judge you and uh, somehow make you feel as though you haven't done enough. And I want that to be got rid of out of our understanding of God. I want us to understand that basically, if it's me and I am it, then there's nothing to separate whatever happens because I can't do anything to him without doing it to me. Are you with me? We so won. Um, and so on that basis, uh, that would be, you know, my, my sort of understanding of God. Now, I, I appreciate that I have sort of stirred the pot a little bit there in, in talking about the God of Israel, um, because most people would not want to separate the God of Israel from Jesus or from Christianity but that's why I said I'm asking questions. So for me, that's where I am. And um, I'm probably panth a pantheist, which is because the universe itself and there's lots of truth out there and we can have it all. And, you know, it's a, it's a scary place to be. But I'll tell you what, I haven't, I haven't got God in a box anymore and that's great. So if, if I've upset anybody, I'm sorry. I don't mean to. Um, I'm on a journey, and it's my journey, and uh, if, if anybody wants to talk to me about it, I'm happy. I'm sorry if I've, uh, you know, confused anyone, but there you go. That's my take on it. I hope you're catching what's been said. I think it's excellent. I think where our problem comes in is that we have thought the Bible was a constitution, when actually it's a conversation. And it has context because if you're going to write something or put something together, you have to put it within the pages of a book. And so inevitably, as you produce that thesis, it will have a, it will have a context that is related to the one who delivers the story. And the story may be wider than that, but that's what the context will be. So I have no problem with 
the story, and I believe the story is, is not a story. I think it's a truth that comes to us, and it comes through a, a Hebrew-Jewish model, but it's written from that context and from that culture. And if you get too hung up with the agenda of the people who wrote the story, you miss what the story is about, because we are monkeys for taking the story and moulding it into what best suits our personal specific thing. So in history, just very quickly, um, some of these things have been used by people who had a wicked heart in the sense that their whole intent was, we make the gods serve our personal agenda to build our empire, to promote our strength, to put down the poor, the forgotten, the less. But throughout history in this conversation, there have been people with a pure heart who simply were asking the question, who is God? What is God? Where do we find God? How do we describe God? How do we meet God? And so within all of these things, which I was raised, just ignore them, they don't exist. They're all wrong, don't pay any attention. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Um, when actually we do need to pay attention and realize that throughout history, pure-hearted people have asked the same question we asked. Who is God? How do we find God? How do we reach God? Now, now in the same way that there are distortions in what any culture writes, there are distortions in that. But there are also truths in that because the question has always been the same. What that does for me, it means that rather than having the religious thing that says we are right, everybody is wrong, therefore God loves us, and if God loves us, God hates you, and if God loves us, he will promote us and bless us, but God hates you, so he will curse you and destroy you. So we then get the story of this God who is, who is sadly sits with that pantheon of, of distorted views of gods who just destroys his enemy and blesses his friends, and you better be his friend. But, but if we switch that and say, actually... That was not the case in many of these things, but actually the truth is people were looking, they were looking for the one who is in the middle of all that, the breath, the life, the soul, the heart. What it means is that we can then love people who have a differing view. It doesn't mean they're right, but some of those things might not mean we're right, but it means we can love them because we realize their heart is reaching out and they're asking the same question, who is God? How do we meet God? How do we have an encounter with him? What does that look like if we have that encounter? And how do we share that with the world? So, so it brings us to a place more of, of love. Now, where it gets really silly, it's funny because I, I was looking at something as Chris was talking uh, about the names and I read this which was really strange you know uh, one of the parts of the Judaistic development was the word shalom which of course shalom means peace but then I read but you can't say shalom in the bathroom you can't say shalom in the bathroom because shalom is the peace of a holy God and he's too holy to be in the bathroom so I'm thinking so you better make sure you don't expire in the bathroom. Because if you do, you're on your own. Because there's no... How stupid is that? It's like the unwillingness to write the name of God or to put G-D. Like somehow... And I said to you last week, it comes from the thing that just God is way too holy for us to speak his name. 
And I, I believe that's part of the narrative of, of the coming of Jesus to say, not only is God not too holy that you can't speak his name, that God is not too holy that he can't be down in the dirt with you in the everyday process of life, in all the prejudices and difficulties, God with us was the declaration. Emmanuel, God with us. So I think all of this to me is, is fascinating, and I think there are, there are you know, a dozen other um, little thoughts that come out of that besides don't say shalom in the bathroom because you can't have shalom. So there's no peace when you're on the toilet. Just understand that. You know, it's funny as well, I mean, just, just as an aside, you know, because as a kid growing up, um, you're looking for the amusing bits. And, of course, in the King James Version, um, there's a thing about that, that, that God would put him out who pisseth against a wall, which, of course, as kids, you, you know, especially as boys, you know, with the toilet humor and... Those, those were the verses that were, you know. But you see, what I'm trying to show you from this thing that, you know, that's the old English version of that. So, so if, if, if he's going after the one who pisseth against a wall, what about him who pisseth against a tree? Or pisseth on the grass? You see, if, if you don't weigh this carefully, you come up with the most ridiculous stuff and it leaves us with a ridiculous God who does ridiculous things, like Chris said, the problem being that if we anthropomorphize him, the danger is we finish up with this petty thing that we call deity that's not deity at all, because in all of this, what we're looking for is, is the true understanding of God. So I appreciate that. I think it's really helped, and I hope you find it uh, helpful too. So help us, Lord, just our hearts, our spirits, our, and even what we've learned, help us to breathe in the breath that is you that's coming in all of this so that in our hearts and in our spirits we, uh, we, we do encounter you on, on greater levels and to understand that ev an evolving God is not, is not uh, dismissing or minimizing but it's actually saying you are more than we could ever imagine and that as we begin to see that unfold you be evolve to become bigger and greater and more than and, uh, and, and more than we ever imagined that you were. So help us to grab these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, bless you. Thanks, Chris. <laughs>